Wowie. 235. I love it when I do these big ones on a, on a significant number. 235 here with, that's right, Rob Wolf. Mr. Paleo Solution himself. Wired to Eat. The Sacred Cow, of course, which is a book and a film. Be sure to check that out. Yes, you did see Rob Wolf there on Joe Rogan a few weeks back. Um, what an honour. And he also probably listened to Mickey Willardin, who we had a couple of weeks back on here, to a great interview with Rob Wolf a few weeks back. So go check out the episode on Wikipedia. Um, awesome conversation. This one's different again. Um, obviously, it's my spin on on talking with the great man. And geez, we go for a ride on topics, which is which is pretty cool. It's always always fascinating where you can where you can go with these things. Obviously, I had a few ideas in my head. Uh, few topics to punch in on um we managed to sneak out an extra 20 minutes out of rob he, he's such a great person to interview you know so thorough in, in his answers and, and this is a magnificent episode so make sure you're, you're sharing it out to your friends especially if i don't know how but if you have never heard of rob before go check out his stuff because he's absolutely legend um haven't been able to get the old element uh electrolytes code sorted yet or so um we'll just have to watch the space for that um maybe a little bit of a issue being in new zealand but i'm sure we can work through that but go check out element um fantastic stuff i took it up the commas the other week and yeah it was marvelous especially waking up the next morning after charging it up that hill um i think just over two hours to get to the hunt where it's a recommended three and it's a good 400 meters up which is nothing huge but it's enough to get the uh get the old blowing going i definitely wasn't nasal breathing climbing up there um and yeah it felt great the next day full days hunting and then again on the sunday just had a peruse around um, but there was plenty of people about as you'd expect the weekend before easter including the auckland tramping club um so yeah the only deer i saw was whilst i was charging it out of the track and <laughs> always the case not always the case but often the case yeah so it was regular programming there hunting in the car mice um that saying there's no deer in the calm ice was almost holding true <laughs> anyway so head into the show notes um rob's given us thorough show notes to uh, to share which is always fantastic and of course the show notes for the stag roar those discount codes for modern pirate uh, for drink art Epa, for 180 projects for mr max books yeah fantastic stuff for you um from just being awesome and listening to this podcast and then of course easy crypto if you want to get into some decentralized cryptocurrencies um, maybe even buy a finance chain and, and get yourself a pest-free token or uh shares these um, those referral codes there get you a little bit a little bit of dough towards your your first investment on those platforms right without further ado the legend the great man uh rob wolf enjoy i loved it What an honour, Mr. Rob Wolf. Thank you so much, mate. It's the power of social media, you know. You, you, you've, you've had the, the opposite side of, of social media, but sometimes it works out, man. You know, it's funny. Um, 
I've learned more because of social media interactions, you know, like uh, you, you get even a small group of people that are into the same stuff you're into. And it could be like jujitsu or nutrition or whatever, but, um, uh, that that hive mind is interesting. Like people will go out and check stuff out in the last questions, and like you end up learning a lot of stuff, and uh, and then just people noodling on things and then asking questions about it. Like it's really been to the degree I've remained relevant, and if I'm relevant or whatever. But to you know, it, personally, I feel like I've I've continued to to grow and learn, and it's been because of the interactions I've had via social media largely. And so mm -hmm. there's this really wonderful piece to social media around that and something that I, I think was really enjoyable early on. And then it's, it's also devolved into this thing where it's, it, it's like, you know, you're, you're a, you're a hiccup away from being canceled and, and, you know, you're a horrible human being and all the work that you've ever done is now meaningless because you had one misstep or misquote or whatever. And so it's a, it's a weird thing. You know, it's definitely a love hate experience for me at this point. That's for sure. I don't know if it's similar for you, but it definitely <laughs> is for me. It, it, it was fine until yesterday. I, I got a uh, community guideline. Uh, it's the raw here. Uh, as I said, we, we, in, um, autumn so for the red stags roaring um so raw um the the bugle down in fjordland's almost over and and uh, the fellow deer will be starting to croak every now and again as well but yeah my mate uh he had been down home to southland to the bottom of new zealand and shot this wonderful red stag and i said uh cracker mate and uh that's not okay for instagram apparently um yeah, so <laughs> they uh, need to learn uh, regional slang, I think. Uh <laughs> well, and, you know, what's funny is, like, uh, you know, my dad growing up, like, if something was good, then that's Cracker Jack. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. It, you know, yeah, and that that's how I, in the context of, like, that's how I would hear it, um, but it also apparently can be a, a derogatory slang towards, you know, Caucasian-oriented people, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's like geez man maybe yeah. maybe yeah. i need, maybe need my race and pronouns i think we might have been all right um but but yeah um <laughs> rob I, i'd like to take it down a note um you, you've you've worked in the low carbohydrate space of course and unfortunately uh on the 29th of march the low carbohydrate space lost a massive leader how close were you to sarah helberg not super duper, although we, we, um, uh, I mean, I, I had her on my podcast, I believe twice. And then I mean, we, it wasn't, we weren't folks that would, you know, routinely like email back and forth and everything. But whenever we hung out, like, I think the, the two times that we hung out in real life, we spent like eight hours together, just like <laughs> chatting and, you know, eating food and all that. And, uh, she, she's interesting to me in the, um, Folks, too few people were either around or remember a time when um, you were really hard pressed to find a, a well-respected physician stand up and say, yeah, a low carbohydrate diet is a great intervention for someone like a type two diabetic or even a type one diabetic. And uh, her, her uh, YouTube talk was really like something else when it, when it happened. And, and, uh, the thing that kind of chaps my backside is that, um, I really appreciate what Verda is doing and has done. And, and it, it, it's not perfect, but it's also, um, it's a, 
show me a better proof of concept mm-hmm. of people doing, you know, metabolic therapeutics to, to a, a really well quantified endpoint. You know, it's like, we are going to reverse type two diabetes. Here's our, our benchmarks and, and all this stuff. And, um, you know, Sarah was, uh, she was almost a more validate. She was more valuable to Verda than Verda was to her in, my opinion, <laughs> in, in the beginning yeah. because Verda was okay. Yeah. Spinny and Volick and what, you know, and, and I love those guys, but people could just kind of shit talk and poo poo that stuff. And it's funny because, uh, Finney and Volick have great bonafides on the lake random uh, on the 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 kind of like bench research side Mm. but then sarah as a practicing physician it's kind of funny because this stuff seems to go in kind of cycles but a practicing physician it's like no i reverse this stuff all day all the time you know using a low-carb diet and then they start citing all these examples it's not randomized controlled trials but goddamn if it's not influential you know and i think that that was something that that sarah really brought to the table with, with yeah. that, particularly in the beginning. And it, and again, like I've been in this space since it, it, 1998, like you can still using the Wayback machine, find me on like the, uh, the Fred old Fred Hatfield forums, the dragon door forums with Pavel Tsatsouline and, and stuff like that. And so I've been in this thing a long time and, you know, like Gary Tobbs is an imperfect individual. I think he's kind of latched onto the insulin hypothesis a little bit too hard, but when he did his soft science of dietary fat piece in 2001, there was nothing else out there. It was like the wilderness. There was <laughs> this tiny little subset of ancestral health, low carb, but it, it was so fringe. There was no New York Times, you know, front page piece on it. There was no like science magazine piece on it. And I, I think that, um, I disagree with a lot of how Gary has progressed over time, but at the same time, I can easily acknowledge the massive impact he had with his early writing with good calories, bad calories, like, like the, he deserves a lot of acknowledgement for that. And we should continue to be critical of, of where, where people, you know, uh, come up short. And I, I think similarly, but, but with Sarah, she knew that, a low carb diet was just a singularly unique therapeutic for beneficial outcome with, with metabolic disease, specifically type two diabetes. So she had a, she couched her stuff in a way that was just very defensible, very honest. And, um, yeah, I think that she was one of the most important people in the, in the space, you know, because of that. I don't know if I rambled on too long, you know, for for that, but no, I, yeah. 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 And, and, uh, I was looking at uh, one of the obituaries that Vertehouse wrote, and they sort of said exactly that, that, you know, when they connected in 2015, which you, you kind of think about, they're like, oh, well, you know, um, 1998, 2001, 2015, her dead talk, and then three years later, 2018, the needle shifted, and mm-hmm. Diabetes uh, USA and Europe and UK said, Oh, maybe we can reverse diabetes and um, maybe actually our sort of low-carb diet is quite well-researched, um, but medications. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. And, and, and then even um, now in Australia, in October last year, they also followed suit. So that took them another three years and we're just waiting for a certain 
person to retire, I think, in one of our universities here in New Zealand for that to come through. But uh, as New Zealanders, we, we kind of are associated with Australasian um, networks, and so it might be a, a little bit quicker than the uh, 10 years behind the rest of the world that New Zealand usually has. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, but, but again, it's interesting in Australia's acknowledgement of reversal of type 2 diabetes is a little thing quoting a paper from 2003 and and they also uh with the verita health they only want to quote the one year data they don't want to quote the three or five year data and mention the cardiovascular oh outcomes. fascinating yeah huh. it's it's just like what a system <laughs> right right it's uh you know we before covid we had a reach out from uh a a uh small sovereign nation in the the caribbean that is uh they have a a regenerative ag crisis because they've abandoned all the food production on their their island and and it which used to be a lot of grazing interestingly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and now their island is desertifying because the grasslands that are there co-evolved with grazing animals and Mm -hmm. if you remove the grazing animals the grasslands die and they become desert and then the island starts washing into the into the ocean so they've got that problem but they have, they have a massive problem with um type 2 diabetes specifically and metabolic disease more broadly and um they just they see the writing on the wall like they're they're 5 or 10 years away from like absolute insolvency as a as a nation mm-hmm. trying to deal with uh, picking themselves up by their own bootstraps paying for a problem that is exponentially growing, like drug cartels don't make enough money to pay for type <laughs> two diabetes. Like there was lit- I, I saw an article the other day that the, uh, the drug cartels selling cocaine are taking an interest in the sugar and diabetes re- uh, relationship because it's costing them so much money dealing with like capos who are, are becoming sick and like their families are becoming wow. sick and they pay for their, their healthcare. Like, so even the mob is deal is having to deal with this stuff, but the, you know, the smaller the nation, I think the more like shit's going to get real, real fast. And you, 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 um, you can say plant-based all day. And like, there's certainly, you know, people can vegan their way to, uh, uh, you know, type two diabetes reversal if they do it correctly. But if your your primary problem is a difficulty in dealing with the metabolism of glucose, if you really dramatically limit glucose exposure, there's a pretty strong chance that we're going to start moving things in a favorable direction. You know, people with PKU, we limit their phenylalanine exposure and, you know, on and on and on. Like this isn't a, a surprising, like novel idea within a metabolic therapeutics. You know, if you have a, a log jam metabolically with a substrate, maybe you limit that substrate to some degree and and then we you know we figure out some other ways of dealing with that so it it'll be interesting like um new zealand and some of these other places even australia um i think have generally been healthier than most of the other westernized countries by by and large but they're 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 catching up and it'll be interesting to see what the kind of market forces come to bear on 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 that you know, because uh, you can socialize your medicine, you can marketize your medicine, but if you've got a J curve of of price increase due to diabetes, like you're going to have to deal with that one way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but I'm an optometrist, so I do uh, diabetic photo screening, uh, which we tend uh, to do one one to two a month, 
And I'm in, in this we um, I'd love to talk to you. I'm in a town that has a a mill and a dairy factory, and so the majority of the people that live here work on some form of shift rotation. Mm-hmm. And you've worked worked with the civilian forces. What what were some key sort of metrics that you guys traced, and how did you shift the needle on on those you know metabolic problems? Uh, I mean, the, the stuff that we tracked, uh, it, it's a standard, you know, hip to waist ratio, uh, triglyceride to HDL ratio that would be more, um, accessible. We also use a, uh, uh, LPIR score, a lipoprotein insulin resistance score, which mm. is, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, Australia or New Zealand use that at all. I don't think so. It's kind of a, kind of an expensive gizmo. It, it tells you a lot of interesting stuff. Um, uh, you can get an ApoB score, which is very analogous to the L- uh, the lipoprotein LDL lipoprotein count. They're, they're basically analogous, but the uh, LPIR score is interesting. It gives you a um, an insulin resistance score that you arrive at very differently than like a uh, say like an oral glucose tolerance mm-hmm. test or like a fasting insulin, and it it, it it's really pretty slick. Like it's very elegant. Um, gauge of metabolic disease and within within shift work population and this was mainly police and firefighters what we noticed is about 60 percent of the police and firefighters that looked okay in standard screening like triglyceride to hdl ratio and stuff like that were flagged as being very metabolically unwell with the lpir score and Mm -hmm. and these are the people that ended up um you know, they're 35 years old and they have a, a cardiac event, you know, at, at, at the end of their shift and stuff like that. So that, that was some of the screening that we used, um, that, but the bugger more internationally is, I think it's a little bit difficult to get to, but in any of the, um, I think you want to get multi-factor in, in that diagnosis, like hip to waist ratio, neck to waist ratio, um, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, A1C, um, those are, those are good, good starters to, to kind of, um, get going. The LPIR score is nice because if somebody starts off with an 85, which is very poor and they go to a 20, if we know their, their age, ethnicity, gender, we can pinpoint accurately, like actuarial table, describe what their risk profile is for mm-hmm. like a type two diabetes or a cardiac event within 10 years. Like, I, I mean, it's very spot on. And if they go from 85 to 25, that spread is a healthcare savings, mm-hmm. you know? And so that becomes really valuable for, you know, projecting stuff forward. But the things that we did to help these folks is, um, particularly with shift work, a low carb diet, you know, is, is the way to get in and start modifying the, um, the total caloric load. I am in the camp that, I think that low carb diets are maybe singularly uniquely helpful in mitigating and reversing the the problems of, of insulin resistance, but mainly because you, it, it encourages people to consume fewer calories. We, we lose body fat and, 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 you know, we, we tend to reverse that metabolic syndrome, but it's not the only way to do it. But in that shift work population, what's really difficult to deal with is the fact that they are sleep deprived that induces insulin resistance. Mm. So I, 
the numbers vary a little bit, but you could make the case that somebody who is sleep deprived from shift work, even from one night or, or multi nights for periods of time, they are just due to the sleep deprivation. They are as insulin resistant as a type two diabetic. So then anything that they eat has kind of double the impact on them. And the, the main way that you could, you could control that impact was through a, a low carb diet. So for a, a non-shift work population, I would be more flexible with like, oh, maybe you want a little higher carb, maybe you want a little lower carb. Like I'll make that a little bit more up to personal preference. Within that shift work population, like the the last lever that you have, you do everything you can to improve their sleep. So when they do sleep, it's like a blacked out room. They wear blue blockers before they go to bed. It's cold. You try to eat your last meal three to four hours at least before they go to bed. So their body temperature can drop. Like you do all the, the good sleep hygiene stuff, but um you you have to control for that that insulin resistant state that comes as a consequence of, of sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. And the in my opinion, the best best tool you have for that is that low carb diet. And and again, mainly in my opinion, what's happening there is that we're not further insulting the, the, the body it's insulin resistant due to the lack of sleep. Let's not throw a massive amount of carbs on top of that. Let, let's provide some, some fuel that isn't going to exacerbate the insulin resistant state, but that also, um, because of the high protein adequate fat, you know, maybe some fibrous veggies and whatnot that fosters some satiety so that we're then not overeating on the back end and then causing insulin resistance, not just from sleep deprivation, but also from overeating, you know, Mm. which is the other, the other part of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a few, uh, gym keyboard warriors out there would be, they'd be happy to hear you say that, uh, it it works via calorie restriction. There's that, that, uh, uh, what's his name? Lane Norton over there with you guys. There's an, there's a British guy. I don't know if you've come across him. His name's James Smith. He's yes. Oh, yeah. you, you have. Yeah. You have come yeah. across the the British Lane Norton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's he's good good value, but oh gosh, hops on. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I think those guys are are right about most everything that they say. And I mean, Lane, I I feel like over time has become more. Um, kind of openly embracing of the the therapeutic potential of a low carb diet, but it, it also, I think accurately saying it's not the only, mm. the only tool to use in the toolbox. But, um, I will say that I, I, I've done a lot of work with like police, military, and fire, you know, mm. people who hypervigilant states, um, uh, sleep deprivation, you know, uh, uh, night, uh, you know, long-term deployment, uh, night ops where they're, they're awake all night wearing night vision goggles that are green. And then they go to sleep with, uh, with, um, uh, basically like Ambien, you know, they sleep, you know, sleep inducing pills, which don't produce sleep. They produce unconsciousness. The sleep architecture doesn't look at all like sleep, like, uh, uh, which is why these guys start falling apart immediately. And then they wake up with literally amphetamines and, and caffeine, and then the rinse, lather, repeat. And I've got a lot of experience of that population. And it's like these low carb diets are, are kind of uniquely valuable it, under those scenarios for helping to mitigate the, the just absolute destruction of, of these people. Um, but I don't have a randomized control trial supporting that. <laughs> so it's all anecdotal and, you, you know, and which is so funny, like, um, 
you know, there was a time where we went to our doctor and if the doctor prescribed us something, he or she would say, well, let me know how this goes. And then we would report back and then the doctor would modify the dosing regimen or maybe halt it entirely based off of what we reported, which is purely anecdotal, but that's most of what medicine is, is anecdote, you know, and that's probably the one real thing that I push back with, with those guys, they've gotten so they use that evidence-based medicine thing in such a way that it's almost like a lobotomy. (laughs) It's like, you know, if I drop a hammer on my foot, it's anecdotal that it hurt, but it, it, the the effect size is such that it's fairly like, I don't need 10,000 people in that thing to, to be able to acknowledge this. And it, it's a weird mixed bag though, because you have, you can't blind talking. for dropping a hammer though, Rob. That's, that, tough, that's tough, I guess so. Study, yeah. Man. I guess that's the, the <laughs> thing, you know, it, it, but even that stuff, folks forget that like these blinding and the double blinding and all that stuff is so that you ferret out super subtle effects. Mm. That's the, that's really the only, you know, like these, huge numbers you need that because the 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 effect is is modest or or you know very very subdued and there's all these situations where that is just kind of kind of silly you know you don't we never did efficacy studies on antibiotics because it was fucking obvious that they worked <laughs> you know it, it it's uh I, so yeah i mean i i really appreciate those guys and and they they do like i Clearly, I'm more in that kind of low carb ancestral health space. And there's just absolute tomfoolery in that space, too. It's just like, oh my God, I, I guess you guys are helping people, but sometimes, you know, su- such a lack of nuance there. And then I think that the, the folks more like Lane and, and James Smith, where they'll rightfully kind of cry foul about some of the tomfoolery in these, these different areas. But, um, but then I, I think that it's kind of overdone oftentimes too. You know, it's it, like science starts at observation. Observation is an anecdote and it just, um, it's dishonest to couch it any other way. Now you, you can't say that with anecdote that we, we have the same depth of insight as, as a larger randomized control trial or something like that, but it's just so dishonest to, to dismiss anecdote as, you know, people will say no, no amount of anecdote is worth any, any, you know, is not an ounce of data make. And that's bullshit. Like the whole inquiry begins at observation. So we can acknowledge that without also saying, well, okay, homeopathy is, is better than surgery or something like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a, yeah, I don't know. And it, not to belabor that too much, but the clinic that I'm on the board of directors of was founded. It's now a lipidology clinic, but it started as an orthopedic risk assessment clinic founded by a bunch of orthopods that started reading the evidence-based literature and looking at it. And like, I don't think any of the back surgeries we do help people was what they started asking, you know? And we've had all these uh, interesting studies where they'll look at like, uh, uh, meniscus repair where they mm-hmm. they'll do the real meniscus repair versus a sham surgery where they just do an incision on the side. So you're getting surgery, you're getting incision, you get pain meds and all that stuff. And what they find is the men- meniscectomies and meniscus cleanups and everything. They do nothing to, to benefit people and, and likely are more injurious than not. Um, we just had a, a shifting of the guards to some degree in the United States it, it, 30, 35 years ago, 
the medical establishment started saying, take a baby aspirin every day to mitigate uh, cardiovascular disease risk because it's this anti-clotting deal. Well, all the data suggested that was good. All the data suggested that was good. Oh, 35 years later, we reassess the data and it looks like that aspirin a day is actually net net, not only not preventing cardiovascular disease, it may net net be, be killing more people than helping because of bleeding issues and whatnot. Like it's so like none of this shit's like written in stone. None of it, you know, science is never done. This is one of the the huge ass chapters for me about COVID. It's like the science is never settled. Like, unless we're, unless we're talking about a pool table and Newtonian physics, it's like, that's pretty buttoned up. Like if I know the mass of a ball and where it gets hit and the, the velocity and everything, we can predict with outstanding you know, ability where that thing's going to go. But once you get into a complex system, it's kind of all bets are off. And I, I guess that I'll shut up here. My, my coffee is kicking in, I guess, but it, it, this is one of the things that just is, is I think as good as the work that a lot of folks in the kind of like evidence-based nutrition or medicine scene do, they're really dishonest too. Like they're, they're not, they would further their position by having the nuanced spot that like, oh, but let's not forget that science begins with observation. Like that is my whole bitch about a ton of people in, in that part of the space. And then the people that are like, you know, uh, it doesn't matter uh, what your lipoprotein count is so long as your insulin is low and you'll never get cardiovascular disease and, and stuff like that. Like we, we just kind of have to deal with them. as, as they come <laughs> up. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that the nuance as you were talking about and the sort of relationship you have with your doctor, you just got to look at when you and your wife slept continuous glucose meters on, slept and, and ate the same or similar things and the variance of response or, or like you Shockingly say, different. Yeah, yeah that, shockingly that crew of firefighters, you know, they're, yeah. they're all in the same shift, but one's one's out the gate and for somehow the other, one, the other guy's all, all good. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, a system thing and there's going to be ups and downs and, and it's it's quite crazy, shockingly different. I like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know how applicable this is, but folks will ask a question: um, Is caffeine intake good or bad for people? You know, and it could be for sleep or cardiovascular disease or whatever. There's a lot of variables to it, but um, the the half this population wide half life for caffeine, like if I consume hundred milligrams of caffeine, how long on average is it until I have 50 milligrams of caffeine? And then how long until I have 25 and, and down and the human population spread is about eight hours is the half-life of caffeine. There are fast metabolizers that clear it in as little as four hours for the half-life. And there are slow metabolizers that are as long as 36 hours. Hmm. Now, I don't know if there's that much very, that's an almost tenfold difference, you know, which is shocking. So the question of is caffeine a good or bad item for a given individual for the fast metabolizer doesn't really matter. Like even in the evening, it probably doesn't matter all that much. It's not going to affect his or her, you know, sleep for the slow metabolizer. The coffee that they had yesterday is still fucking up their sleep today. And mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a real deal. There's a massive difference there. I don't know if there's a tenfold difference in like protein needs one person to another or fiber digestibility, one person to another. I don't know where those, those, you know, tenfold deltas exist within standard physiology, but just knowing that there are a few tenfold differences in physiology within a human population 
should cause us to pump the brakes a little bit where it's kind of like, okay, we really do need to individualize this stuff. Like we've got these broad categories of, of the way that we tackle things. And then if we're really going to help people, like we, we have to acknowledge the individual, which then ironically brings us back to anecdotal level. We don't have a randomized controlled trial for a million people of that specific genotype to know how this is going to go. We have to just tinker and experiment a little bit. Mm. Yeah. And then you look, look at things on the systemic level. It was funny last night. Um, this guy, John O'Frew in New Zealand is working in the regenerative space. Um, he's following very much the Paul Salatin of, uh, ideas of, of moving things fast. So on our flat land here in New Zealand, we have a lot of dairy farming going on, which does do quite a rot- small paddock rotational grazing. They're all about um, what they've got left is residual, how much the cows eat, because of course that shows up in their vat. And then on our marginal land, it's it's sheep and beef, and sometimes at, at large scales. And then we have a small, quite small levels in New Zealand of arable land. Um, and yeah, it, that's sort of these big X uh, glacial riverbeds. That mm-hmm. um, have have huge huge nutrients in them, and they're in a drought situation. Well, were I don't know if it's still the st- the case. And then, of course, as I said, it's about to be winter, so the growth of of, of things on that country is a bit bit rough. But he he sort of brought up the the topic last night. He had um, some Glad, you know, the brand that they make the wrap and things like that. Glad rubbish bags that were made of fifty percent uh, ocean plastics, and he. He had bought them and then he was kind of thinking about it. Oh, so you've got 50% of the problem you're making and you've added another 50% to the problem. And then he asked the question, what about, you know, inverted commas, the food production system? Is it about feeding people or is it about continuing a system that pays people? <laughs> right, like, right. Like, oh, mate, you're, you're opening up a can of worms. <laughs> but how, how, how important do you think the locality is uh, for for nutrition? Um, uh, Greg Fickey, um from oh, from Australia has talked about um, fresh, local, and seasonal. Is a is, and I think that's a fantastic way to go in terms of your sunshine, your, your sleep, your your glucose sensitivities, and and you know just quality food. Really, if it hasn't come, yeah. gone through a process, it's probably pretty good. Yeah, you know, it, it's um I tend to make everybody angry on this because even though I'm kind of libertarian in in kind of political orientation, um I'm not uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm not which usually just being libertarian is enough to piss people off. Like yeah. I've I've kind of noticed as a as a jumping off point, but um coming to New Zealand, I mate, re- they, they got eleven percent, uh, and because we we have a multi-party um, right. sort of sort of parliament, and uh, yeah, eleven percent last time. So that, yeah, <laughs> that's not bad. That is not bad, and it, it it's enough of a a seed to maybe affect some some <laughs> benefit there if if there is benefit to the you know, the most of the kind of classical liberal ideology that, that underpins, uh, you know, libertarianism. But um, I think that we would be, we, we, so we have this highly networked world. I think there's some miraculous stuff to that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really amazing that some people will, will decry the fact that a, a uh, avocado from, you know, Oaxaca, Mexico ends up in, um, Ontario, Canada in, in, you know, in December, 
I'm not that off put by that because I, I think global trade is is good. I do think that there become these interesting, weird artifacts that happen though, like in the United States, I think that so the meat, the poultry, uh, uh, a lot of the, the dairy even, it should be produced and consumed much more at a local level. Like because of cheap energy in the past, comparatively cheap energy, and because of some some monopolistic activity, like people will will raise beef cattle or even bison in one area of the United States, ship it 1,500 or 2,000 miles to another area to be butchered and processed. And then it'll get sh- you, you know shipped and distributed all, all around. And amidst all this, we're getting imports of Brazilian beef and Australian lamb. It, you know, it's really kind of kind of wacky. And again, I'm I'm open to if a uh, if the economics makes sense to export foods to other places around the world, by all means do it. Like I but um a lot of the the and I don't know how dysfunctional like the the meat processing is in say like Australia and New Zealand. In the United States, it's horribly dysfunctional. It is totally broken. Like the really large players, the four or five big companies that produce 95% of the the meat and dairy and whatnot in the United States, they will buy the time in these processing facilities so that the small time operator can't even get in. And then because of USDA, FDA guidelines, that small time operator is very limited in what he or she can do as far as, you know, butchering and, and, and selling that meat. Like it, it's super limited. And so I, I think that there's, um, I think like if society were to face, uh, a pandemic, a bunch of supply chain issues, a, uh, a volcanic eruption that maybe is going to cause an elongated winter, a global conflict that is limiting the access to a host of fertilizers, and you were to stick all that shit together at the same time, I think that we're going to see some major cracks in a global food production and distribution system. And some of the the solutions to that might um, surprisingly be more local production and consumption. Mm-hmm. And 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 to mitigate a, a bunch of these uh, challenges, and another big ironic feature within all that is all these areas that usually complain about drought. Grass is almost unaffected by that story. The mm-hmm. grass grows whether it's a good, you know, water year or a drought year, and it, this is some of the ironic stuff that you really talk to, like the pasture based uh, folks that, that that do this. It's not that big of a deal for those those people, you know. But if you are very intensified in your process, so it's tied to corn and soy, and you get that that animal feed that that you know um, uh, goes into that industrial kind of kind of feed process, those are massively influenced by by you know oil prices and feed prices and and all that type of stuff. And we're seeing here in the United States right now, like. Um, Corn is going to be in really limited supply over the next year because fertilizer is going to be in limited supply. And so people aren't really planting corn. They're planting more soy, but there's only so much soy you can feed the animals before it makes them sick. But I've been talking to people in the the pasture-based scene 
And they're like, none of this is affecting us at all. Like the shipping costs are affected because petroleum is, is more mm. expensive. And so it's, a, it's expensive to ship stuff around, but, um, I don't know if I'm hundred percent answering this, this question, but I, I think that the, there are huge benefits from more local production and consumption. Like there's a, there's an opportunity for <clears throat> economic diversity and infrastructure, like Ranching is hard work, but it can be very good work. It can be good for the community, good for the environment. It can pay people well if it if it's uh, well run. I think that uh, regenerative ranching and farming is going to be the last thing that artificial intelligence ever figures out because it's creative. Like it's all creative problem solving. You know, um, doctoring and lawyering are going to get replaced by AI. It, it could be today. Like you could put most diagnostic doctors, most lawyers out of work today by running, um, doctoring and lawyering stuff through AI. Like it, it, it's already, it's been shown it does better jobs than, than people do on that, but creative problem solving type stuff, um, which is all the regenerative ranchers and farmers do, that's going to be like one of the last places that artificial intelligence comes in. So there's a, you know, as technology evolves, there's all this concern around, well, what will humans do for work in the future? Well, a lot of people should probably go back to more of an agrarian lifestyle, producing food for both themselves and their, their, their contemporaries and whatnot. So I think there's huge opportunity in all that. It's just, we've, we had so much, short-term success with the industrial row cop food model. It's produced so much food and it's scaled so massively and everything that I don't think that we can conceive of, of doing things in a different way. But I, I think that the, um, the stress that the system is under at this point, like we're, we're in a spot where we're, we're going to have to shift and hopefully we shift faster and smarter and more nimbly versus like waiting for things to really grind down to a halt. But New Zealand and Australia and the United States, even though these these areas are experiencing drought, they should be doing more pasture-based meat, not less. Mm. And this is one of those ironic things that people, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Like the row crop thing isn't moving the needle favorably for food, for water, for carbon sequestration, for any of that stuff, you know, and it's really resource intensive. And it, it just I'll, I'll shut up in a minute, but just as a side note, usually it's hard for um, animal producers to sell the the manure that they have to to be used in farming because it's cheaper to use industrial synthetic fertilizer. You package it in a bag, it, it's transportable and everything. But because of these fertilizer shortages, um, people are now buying manure futures from uh, meat producers because they don't know when the the you, you know um, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer is going to be back in rotation. So this is an example, like the a lot of the waterway issues that come about from from nitrogen waste products are twofold. One is that not enough of the animal waste is used effectively, getting it folded back into agricultural products because it, it it's kind of expensive and and difficult to to manage. And, um, and then the other side is that the synthetic chemical fertilizer doesn't enter the bio system the way that the, the living manure does, and it washes away and gets into the, the watershed. And so this is where like in the Gulf of Mexico in the United States, there's this dead zone from nitrogen effluent going out of the Mississippi that, that destroys like the, 
this patch of the ocean becomes like un, unlivable, unproductive, and it's like a third the size of the United States. And mm. none of that needs to happen. But all of that is stuff that like we need to be willing to pay a little bit more money to use naturally produced fertilizer and be okay with that, that cost bump because of the external benefits of dealing with that locally and it not ending up in the water and not, then not, not dealing with the, um, the synthetic chemical fertilizer, you know, problems that it raises, but it's going to be an economic driver that makes that happen ironically, you know, and it, it, it's just a, a, a really precarious system that we exist in right now, but it's not, we're not really that far away from pushing it back into a, a really much more regenerative state than what it's been in the last like 40 years. Yeah, like I, I think with New Zealand, we're luck, lucky, I guess, that we have so much marginal land. And so we um, have worked for years and years and years on, on pastoral farming. And so right. that, that's very much key to it. And then we we have these, um, in our high country, these large-scale pastoral leases where we're um, merino sheep and just normal sheep as well uh, run around in, in the mountains and the hills and um, you know we, we're very much in agricultural roots here in New Zealand lots of the the migrants from uh, the UK and Ireland were all coming out here to, to come farm and um, we have a, a television show on, on a on a Sunday night here called Country Calendar and the one last week had, was this um, it's called a crown lease, so they, they lease off the government or, or maybe even the Queen over in, in England, if you want to put it that way. But um, yeah, they had this little corner that was in a horseshoe where they had no longer grazed this area and it was it was barren. And he yep. was showing the, the tussocks and in the, in the mountain grasses that they were grazing with the sheep and then this corner. And it was just the greatest example of um, the hooves and the... And the uh, selective grazing of these of these sheep how that then brings it up again in the yeah. manure and, and he made the highlight you know there's a lot of criticism of what comes out the back end of a sheep but he said that's that's the the thing that's driving this growth in this high country because look over there there's no poos over there there's rabbit poos over there and we try to shoot them um but uh <laughs> yeah uh, we're pretty good at, and they've, they've got a, a so one of the releases of red deer in new zealand was on this property and they've got a got a um hunting a private hunting block on on there and 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 again they're, they're managing these deer and getting awesome results because there's just great nutrition up there in, in these mountains yep. and and they've been glacial and, and so there's all these nutrients but and I, th and I think that's also where new zealand is quite good we're we're reasonably good at, at digging up minerals and, and we've got plenty of companies that are working with sort of um seaweed and, and fish meal and, and that type of things um back back to your question about producers we we, we have a, f a few producers so it's not a monopoly um but definitely when you can't get shipping crates and you live in the middle of nowhere uh yeah there's there's sort of some challenges so i follow the the venison industry um first light boys send them over to you guys i think i think they every now and again i think at the start of the bugle they they chuck a uh, venison sandwich and at Arby's and for for the for all the elk hunters. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's been fascinating watching watching venison markets. And I follow one of the the other dairy producers. We have a um, what is it called? It's like we're all the farmers, a co-op of yep. for, for dairy. And then there's a, there's sort of two or three other more um, business orientated dairy producers. And again, 
shipping links with China and, and demand and supply. And um, the one I follow is linked to a seller in Australia that overpromised, and um, then their contract kind of got scrunched up into a piece of paper. And so that's it's meant that's been a very cheap share to buy. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I'm holding out for, for greater times. But like you say, then you add in a, a world war and a volcano and, and um, some, some serious shipping problems in in your neck of the woods in china and now shanghai being locked down again it's kind of like oh wow how's this how's this all going to go with this international food system <laughs> yeah 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 it's um it works reasonably well while it works but it's remarkably unresilient there's no um redundancies to it and uh uh some very good apocalyptic novels and movies have been made <laughs> with less, less like base material of like shit that could go sideways. Like it, it's, um, it's really interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah. We're not exploring oil here. Like my mate, my mate who's coming on Sunday. He's a drilling engineer. And I think there's no more permits to explore for oil in New Zealand, despite uh, some large fields, you know, off, off the coast. And yes, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure, but we, we, it's it's interesting because we're we're pushing the, the sort of Paris Accord and or whatever it is these days, but and, and and we're pushing for things, but then we come up with oh we'll plant um, pine trees which then get cut down and shipped to China and processed in China, and it's like you know I have a mill just here, and it's like the, the economics of of growing um, for, um, exotic plantations on marginal land that was previously a sheep and beef farm. Um, and then sending it overseas and then bringing it back in. And so the cost of housing in New Zealand is so extreme. And of course, the cost of transport is so extreme. You go, what are we doing? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It really is that kind of macroeconomic, e um, side of it in the, uh, the, the, this is again where like some of my libertarian ideas get me either canceled or, or make people cranky at me a lot. But, you know, like I, uh, looking, let's look at like, um, uh, the Netherlands, you know, uh, much of the Netherlands is, is below sea level. They've been dealing with climate change for almost a thousand years. Mm. They've been building levees and dikes and kind of staying ahead of it. And part of the reason why they're so good at that is they're a pretty wealthy nation. Like they're, you know, first world and industrialized and, and have a good economic base. And, and they, they took over a bunch of colonies for a while there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so there's stuff there, like there's, there's some legacy there, but it's, it's like, well, what can we take from that? You know, do we need to panic about climate change? Do we need to think about having billionaires fly airplanes around seeding the upper atmosphere, trying to create a, a winter, you know, like. Whatever you know, this is one of the things that's really difficult for me, and it, it and it's hard to even have a conversation around it when you really read what the climate scientists are suggesting as like worst case scenarios. They're they're concerning, but it it we can deal with this, particularly at a global level. And if we make people, the worst thing that could happen is that we we enter these climate change scenarios and we still have a significant chunk of the global population in poverty. If these people are middle class, which is the direction we've been going, we have amazing infrastructure to deal with with these these climate change uh, challenges, air conditioning and 
dikes and levees and, you know, water, you know, first world water infrastructure and all that stuff. But if you, if you don't get to that, then, then these folks are going to have a, a much more difficult time of doing it. You're a crazy person, even suggesting that that is a viable option, but some of the things have been thrown out there, you know, like we're going to curtail all this energy it, exploration. Okay. Well, when we do need electricity and the wind isn't blowing and the sky is cloudy and so our renewables are not functioning, which is where Germany has has been. And they're kind of in this spot where they're like, do we spin up our nuclear power plants again? You know, like this experiment didn't really work. They get really harangued for it. And it, it's um and it's difficult. Folks are in such a fizz about mitigating climate change, particularly the, uh, the the greenhouse gas emissions side of this, that they have kind of nutty ideas, like we should cull all the animals that that produce greenhouse gases. Well, then our grasslands die, and then that oxidizes. They introduce and, species and, in New Zealand, Rob. <laughs> and there is that, and that's a challenge, you know? I mean, it, it, and I don't know the right or wrong answer out of that, that thing. You know, like uh, the funny deal is in the United States, I would argue that that like all of the cattle are a a uh, artificially you know they're they're an invasive species. It should all be buffalo. It should be bi- American bison, mm. and we have good friends that run bison, and they're bastards to deal with. They're still wild animals. Are very difficult. They're larger, more more mean, and all that. But they have they have like a ninety nine point nine percent birth rate. Like wow. they never have problems during birth, and and. If they do, you can't get near them to help them because they'll, they, the, the mother will kill you. The bystanders will kill you. Whereas like a, a conventional cattle, I think they have like something like an 18% like difficulty giving birth. Like they're, they're super high intervention and they need. Oh, this man, New Zealand's pretty good. We, we, we're rocking nineties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And our sheep, yeah. our sheep, our sheep, we go over the hundreds. Yeah. But okay. No, Okay. This, this is sounding like yeah, the venison story. The, yeah, the, the, yeah. They're, they're the same. They're, they're so okay. Yeah, you, you, you sit stock them and let them let them do their thing. <laughs> let them do their thing. Yeah, and so there's stuff like that, you know, and and even, um, you know, cattle are an Asi- a, a, a wet area Asiatic species, and like the the North America, particularly the middle of North America, where the bulk of the grasslands are, that's an arid environment. And so you've Mm. got a water intensive species that has kind of displaced the native fauna, which is bison in large part. But there's little shit like that, that a little tweak here, a little tweak there could really change a lot of stuff. You know, Um, a lot of the American West should have camels in it, should have camels Mm. and different types of sheep because they're a, 12,000 years ago, the, the great basin, you know, from Las Vegas up to Salt Lake city and, and, and around that area, um, it had like three species of camel in it. They just got, got hunted into extinction, you know, the Clovis, Clovis people and all that type of stuff, but it would, it used to have multiple camel populations there. And that would be a wonderful inner. So there's an argument for an, you know, a non-native species that would actually fill uh, an important niche that was being filled um, 12,000 years ago, but it's just like it predates most of, hu- you know, human experience in the Americas to understand, oh, this is still a gap in the ecosystem. Like our uh, our pronged horn sheep in the United States is super fast and, and uh, uh, super mobile. And it, it is that way because there used to be an American, a, a North American cheetah. 
but that, mm. that thing has gone extinct. And I don't know that, you know, that lacking that apex predator is that big of a deal, but there, there are these, um, kind of bioengineering opportunities to address a lot of these problems, but it's, uh, I don't know, sometimes it blows up in your face, like putting rabbits in, in New Zealand oh, yeah. and stuff like that. And they and just fucking take over everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not, not, um, or, or Wapiti, you know, we, we, we got those as, as a gift from Theodore Roosevelt and right. We've got those in a little, little block, but, um, yes, yeah, so I've, I've been reading, uh, a book about the early ones that were more sort of the same genetics. And, and it's funny. There's, there's the article about you, you killing the inverted commas elk with, with your, uh, with your spear hands, which, yeah. which is, which is amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the book, the guys and, uh, an ecologist and he's a stickler for nomenclature and, and he just spends half the book saying no they're not elk they're whoppity they're they're, they're it's, it's, it's not what they are right yeah no i think right. their ship i think their ship's passed i think yeah, everyone recognizes that shaped antler now as, as an elk <laughs> right 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 yeah i mean how, how did how did you even do that uh, uh, throw a spear at a 400 kg or what, what, what 600 pound 600 <laughs> pounds yeah yeah um so I knew that we were going to be given materials to make the atlatls as part of the show. That that was communicated to us. We'd be given one full set, and there was a guy Billy on the show who's very very good at primitive skills, you know, craft craftsmanship and whatnot. And then we would be given the raw materials to make more. And so before the show, I made my own atlatl and I practiced like six hours a day with it, and I, I got reasonably good. Like a, you know, and uh, each set is a little bit different, but I, I got reasonably adept with it, but I didn't go out on the first, um, probably six or eight days of hunting because the folks doing it were just kind of knuckleheads and there were a bunch of camera crew with them. And I'm like, this is not going to work, you know? And so it was like day 10 and it was just myself, Billy, and this woman, Manu, who's, who's actually a New Zealander, I believe. And, uh, yeah, yeah. She's from New Zealand, Manu Toiko. Um, okay. and, uh, um, we went out and we said two camera people long distance, only like a thousand, thousand meters away. That's it. Like, and then we will wear GoPros and be mic'd up and all that. And so you, you've got your local there, but you can't be right on top of us. And we just spent a long time, like trying to get, um, we got out before the sun came up and we, we got up on this ridge line where the sun was coming up behind us. The wind was blowing from the elk across to us, and we got within like 30 yards of, of these critters. I, I missed my first shot and then hit it on the second shot, and I actually, one second here. Like, that's the launcher. Wow. And this is the dart, and you can see right there, that broke off. Yeah. And that's exactly what we see in like, you know, uh, uh, primitive finds where the, the stone tools break off in, in like the bones of the animals. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but basically you just get hungry enough that, you know, when you don't eat anything <laughs> for 10 days, you're like, I'm going to make this work. Come, come hell or high water. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You you were you were super hard age. It, it, so is that is that the office that you that you're in there, Rob? Yep, yep. It was a garage uh, eight eight months ago, and then my father in law and I converted into a into an office. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and so, 
where are you based now and how do you, how do you go about running your businesses? Oh man, I'm in Kalispell, Montana, and right. which is part of the Flathead Valley. And um, I mean, we do the Healthy Rebellion, which is this online community. We do three times a year resets. Um, we do the podcast. You know, we we and, and then I have this this element company that I'm a, a part of this electrolyte company. And fortunately we have a, a good team that runs most of the uh, operations with that. But, you know, it, we're lucky in that I'm, um, I'm 23 years into doing this stuff, you know? And so I've figured out kind of where my strengths are and I've been able to find some people to help me in the areas that I'm not that strong. So really for the, for the first time in my life, I'm only doing the things that I'm really pretty, pretty good at. Like I enjoy doing podcasts. Um, I don't want to travel to do speaking gigs, but I'm really excited about having people come to the Flathead Valley and, and visit us here and do some, some speaking gigs and stuff like that. So I'm going to uh, start spinning some of that up, but, uh, you know, we run this healthy rebellion, we run this element company, and then I'm a, a early stage investor in a, a lot of different like health and regenerative um, companies. And so I'm advisor on, on those. And I, I'm fortunate that I have a decent skill set and experience set. So I've been able to, to help some, some companies that are, you know, kind of up and coming in this health and regenerative ag space. And I mean, that we just, it, I, I don't know if that's super answering your question, but that that's kind of what it, what I do. And, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's somebody smarter than me probably could have got to this spot where they, they, we, zeroed in more on what their specific, um, unique talents are earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, uh, you know, I'm at this spot now where I, I, I do some writing, I do some podcasting, uh, go, go on, you know, shows like yours. And, um, I feel like I'm able to provide some value doing that. And I really legitimately enjoy it. And it, it keeps me kind of cognitively engaged. Like it makes me continue to ask questions and, and think about, you know, what I'm, what I'm up to, whether it's the nutrition side or the, the, uh, you know, more regenerative ag side. So, and it's, you know, we're dealing with some of the most complex systems it, it known, you know, like climate, biology, ecology, human physiology. So there's, there's never not something that you could be curious about and try to try to draw some, you know, some deeper insight out of. Yeah. How much on a micro level did running a couple of CrossFit boxes then scale out to, you know, working with business and micro um, human performance and, and physiology? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. So, um, I mean, it, it taught me a lot. Trying to, it, it, in a lot of ways that, that brick and mortar gym facilitated doing everything else that I've done. So wow. like even being on the board of directors of a medical clinic, a lot of the insight that I was able to provide to them in this like risk assessment process that they, they did. I, uh, we did a, a risk assessment program for the Reno police and fire department over 10 years ago. We found, um, their most metabolically unhealthy folks with some, some risk screening, um, got them on a lower carb paleo type diet, got them doing kind of a, an appropriately scaled CrossFit type thing, modified their sleep as best we could. That pilot study ended up saving the city of Reno, $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment. So like pretty big deal. And I've been working to try to scale that since then, but 
so much of what I was able to bring to that, that situation was, was insights that I had from running the brick and mortar gym. And so it's funny, like a brick and mortar gym itself really doesn't scale. And unless you get in and you start teaching people to run a gym or, or, you know, something like that, which I was never super interested in, like doing a certification around mm. my thoughts around coaching and everything, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to scale, but we, we did learn a ton from that. And like my wife became a, uh, co-founder of a tech company that was, was focused on providing uh, gym software for people in and around the, the CrossFit scene. And so the fact that she had run that brick and mortar gym and she had used the other software available at the time, she had this, like, it, it was, she was the only non coder in the, the founders round because these guys had all these great, seemingly great ideas about how to put together a software to run a gym. And she's like, that's nuts. Like, there's no reason you would do that. Here's the re you know, the reason why, because she understood like from, okay, somebody's going to give me a phone call an email or walk through the front door. And here's where I start building a relationship with them, you know, within our, our CrossFit gym. And so she was able to take it from that level and then really help that to inform the, um, the, the product development. So those things were really, you know, that brick and mortar exposure was, was definitely valuable, but it, it also, um, I kind of laugh sometimes because we put every bit as much effort into that gym as we were in there for 10 years as what you would do with like a Twitter startup or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And there's nowhere near the fucking payday that, <laughs> that there is, you know, I mean, we were able to sell the gym and, and, uh, we did good with that and the folks who took it over did, did well with it and they took it to a whole other next level, which was awesome. But we've been around startups since then. We've known people in startups. We've been parts of other startups and we're like, we worked harder in the gym than we did with this. And there was never going to be the potential payday that there, there was with like a tech company or even a supplement company or something like that. So mm -hmm. that. That's interesting, you know, but it also that, that time in that, that brick and mortar scenario and working with lots of people. And also I got to travel the world a, a fair amount and like give nutrition seminars and, and work with the CrossFit certification staff and everything. Got to meet a lot of people and had a lot of experience. And, and I think learned a fair amount about how to do things and not to do things and just kind of think, think differently about how all this health stuff rolls out. Yeah. And then the rollout, of course, you know, you took your, your at-home electrolyte mix without any sugar to to scale like how good is that Rob? And, and yeah it's yeah. bloody delicious and actually i took it took it hunting the other week and i enjoyed the lack of of sugar and that that sticky aftertaste when you're trying to yep. sit oh, there awesome. and concentrate <laughs> yeah yeah that's awesome yeah and that was uh that was like a problem hidden in plain sight that we we you know five years ago i had no thought that i would be like selling people salt and electrolytes but we we kind of just tripped and and went into it and then realized oh this is really a legitimate need and nobody is really tackling it in the way that i i think is is uh smart you know mm -hmm. so that that was a that was a weird thing and you know with i guess that's one thing that, you know if folks are trying to think about entrepreneurship and stuff like that it's hard to do but if you can find kind of a problem hidden in, in plain sight. Um, but, but the thing about that is often that, like, I liken it to like, there's a Coke can that's in, in like the hallway mm. and like my kids will have shit out and, and 
I'm like, would you put that away? And they don't put it away, but they just keep moving it. But instead of actually dealing with it, they don't, but you just keep shuffling it around. And that's what we did with this electrolyte problem. Like there were all these issues that I eventually realized, oh, that's an electrolyte problem. Well, here, here's a homebrew deal with that. And then people are like, this homebrew is cool, but I can't travel with it. And there's nothing convenient and none of the products on the shelf meet the need. And then Mm. I was like, do you think we should make it? And people are like, yes, you idiot. Like that's what, you know, what that's I've what been I'm insinuating asking. for three months. That's <laughs> what I'm asking for. And, um, and it's hard to do that. You know, that's a, a, maybe you spend 10 or 15 years doing business or working before you see that one thing. And then is that one thing that you see, like, is it really worth getting into and, and going after and whatnot? Like we, we have some friends that are in the regenerative space and uh, on the protein side of that. And we were talking to them and like, it's, it's been a shit fight for them the whole way. And we started talking to them and I'm not going to give away details on this, but it was basically like, we figured out that one of the biggest challenges they have may end up being the most lucrative side of their business and way easier than what they've been doing. They were just like, holy shit, you know? Mm. And we still don't know. I, I I don't know. There's still stuff that needs to be vetted out, but it literally was a problem hidden in plain sight. Like hmm. they've just been working around this thing and they've, they've had their eyes on this, this one kind of more conventional path. And I'm like, okay, so this is a problem. And this problem actually could be your largest revenue generator. You would no longer need to pay to deal with the problem. The problem is now paying you and it's paying you better than what your main business is. And they were like, Oh my God, you know, and, mm. and so we're, we're working to try to figure that out, but they've been in business for 10 years now. And had I not had the experience with, with element, I don't think that I would have had the, I've been really looking at things in a different way. It's like, is there a problem here that people are just kind of like papering over versus, you know, dealing with the issue. And, and that's a whole, I, I'm chatty Kathy right now, but like, I came from a fairly poor family. And so you get really good at just making do with what's around you. And so this is a new thing for me where it's like, there's a problem. I can always make do with the problem. I can do a workaround, but now I'm figuring out, okay, this is a problem. I want the problem to go away. I want it actually dealt with. And this is a way different mentality that I had as a kid. I was very adaptable and, 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 uh, uh, resilient as a kid and a younger adult, because I could kind of make any situation work, but making any situation work is a far cry from like envisioning how you address all the issues that you don't necessarily like that much. Like that's a way different, you know, mentality to have with it. I'm just now kind of getting in this spot where I'm like, okay, that thing's not optimum instead of just kind of making do with it. How do we actually take this pain in the ass part of, you know, somebody's life or somebody's business and turn that into an asset of some kind. Like it's a really different, different, you know, view. Um, an example just at a macro level is, uh, all of the rare earth mining that occurs to get the materials for solar panels. One of the main side products of that is a radioactive product called thorium. Thorium historically has just been like stuck in these drums and then buried underground and uh, uh, unfortunately, it's mainly just China, but, but people are, are looking into, they're like, well, there are five or 10,000 years of thorium that we have already that could mm. fuel nuclear reactors. Nobody's made a functional nuclear reactor with thorium, but the, the thorium reactor in theory could be 
non-pressurized. It could never melt down in like a Fukushima uh, style uh, scenario. So, so ostensibly much, much safer than all the, you know, three mile Island, Fukushima, um, Chernobyl, all that stuff. And it was this, this problem, like this major pain in the ass of the rare earth mining industry, trying to get materials for solar panels. And they might have something that's way more valuable in the form of thorium. If somebody's mm -hmm. willing to like invest the, the time and the effort to, to spin it up. And then part of that is that people are really afraid of nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. And so there's this like solar seems great, but you know, nuclear energy seems super dodgy and dangerous. And, and is that really true? And we have this whole other technology that we're going to keep making thorium if we make continue to make solar panels. So why not figure out something to do with that? Just as like there are interesting examples out there in the world where, where stuff like that has happened. Absolutely. So, Rob, um, with conscious of your time, my, my alarm for getting up went up before, and I'm swear that was more than ten minutes ago. <laughs> um, people, people can grab your books like everywhere, I'm sure, um, and and the podcast that's everywhere, or just on its own. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, available everywhere. Yeah, uh, Healthy Rebellion Radio. Yeah, yeah. So I'll put those all in the, all in the show notes and Sacred Gal, um, the the film and the book. I realized that I'd watched the film three years ago when I watched it the last week. I was like, I've seen this. Before. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. 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 No. Have you noticed, noticed an uptick since being on Rogan? Yeah, that's a Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, both in sales and with people checking out the, the film for yeah. sure. Um, I will, at the end of the day, when I die, I will probably make about $3 an hour for, for doing the book and film. Like it, it, it's, uh, it's going to be the least lucrative thing that I ever did, but it's, um, it really seems to be moving the needle in, in, um, just creating the conversation around like, is every single thing that we hear from media and social media around like animal husbandry and climate change, like, is, is that the lock stock and two smoking barrels. Like, is that really the whole, the whole thing? Is that the whole story or is there more to the details? And one of the interesting things that happened after the Joe Rogan show was that, uh, a guy made a comment that was, it was pretty cool and it got liked a lot. And, and he, he said, if these guys are only 20% right, mm. it is critical that we figure this out because getting climate change, the story around animal husbandry and climate change 20% wrong is going to completely fuck us over. Mm. Like it's going to be a disaster. And he said, the flip side, if these guys are 90% right, we need to be house on fire, like changing everything. Because if we're off by 90% in what the claims are around, say like animal husbandry and climate change and the potential of using regenerative ag to mitigate the effects of climate change and foster food security and create decentralized food networks. If we're 90% off on that, then we're really, really lost. And that mm -hmm. was, um, it was cool because it, it, like, if nothing else, the guy wasn't saying an emphatic one way or the other, like he wasn't a complete, you know, you must do what Rob and Diana are suggesting here. But I think that that's, a great way to couch this thing. You know, how important is it to address climate change? I would say very important. How important is it to address climate change accurately? I would say deadly important, you know, because we could do all kinds of stuff. Um, Nassim Talib is famous for, for mentioning things, you know, from medical interventions or, or different ecological interventions. But again, you know, like introduction of, of uh, non-native species. 
seems like a great idea. What could possibly go wrong? You know, and, and it's like, um, you know, with the best of intentions, and, and but the good intentions don't always play out well in the in the real world. Like uh, facts and mechanisms and all that stuff end up mattering. So, if nothing else, what Sacred Cow has done is it's provided a reasonable spot for people who are open to the possibility that the the standard climate change narrative, but as it specifically relates to animal husbandry, might not be accurate. That there's more to the story. That um, animals grazing animals in particular don't disproportionately consume water they Hmm. don't waste land like you're talking about like a ton of new zealand is not arable croppable land literally the only thing you can do with it is grow grass and grow the animals that eat the grass and then have the diversified ecosystem that supports that holding that is what that environment is for two-thirds of the earth's land mass falls under that category too and yet we are vilifying the animals that are a non-negotiable feature of those glass grasslands. You can't remove the grazing animals and expect the grasslands to do anything but turn into de- desert. We can overgraze those grasslands and screw it up and turn them into desert also. So we have we have to be mindful of that. But it, it's um that's important stuff to get right. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's really important stuff to get right. And it, at least beginning to ask that question and and, and wonder if is the dominant narrative 20% wrong, 90% wrong? Like where, where, where is that? And it, as it stands right now, like it literally seems to be about like 95% off in my opinion. And so what do we, what do we do about that? Where do you start with that stuff? Mm-hmm. You know? And, and I think that a, a decently produced book and film is a, a nice spot to at least start having a conversation on that. Yeah. No, and it's very enjoyable and very eye-opening film, and you you don't beat around the bush with some of the imagery as well, which is which is good. You know, you, you're having the honest conversation. It's a bit like hunting. It's like, did you go and catch that? You're like, no, no, I killed that. Or in your case, you literally speared that. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. So you've been super generous with your time, Rob. Uh, uh, you know, your your answers have been amazing. You, you talk about being a, you know, nattering Nancy. It's fantastic, mate. And, and it's been awesome to pick your brain. Um, my last sort of question is, what is the, the a thing that keeps you in, in flow? So um, metro or a way you live your life or a quote or something that, you know, if you're implementing that, things go well. And maybe if things are on a messy path you kind of look and go i'm not doing that one thing or following that one thing do you have something like that 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 guides you along yeah a little bit and it's super cheesy though good like it's really cheesy but um and it's kind of my my it informs my parenting style strongly which people are gonna be horrified by this but um (laughs) i'm a big fan of frank herbert's tune like i've read the book probably a dozen times uh uh, really enjoyed the most recent movie, but that whole scene where Paul Atreides puts his hand in the box and and the box induces pain in him. And basically, if he pulls his hand out of the box, he's going to die. And the um, the woman who's administering this test is basically saying that it, it a human is able to marshal their 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 presence such that even in the moment of extreme pain, you can, you can make a choice about how you react. And that is just this thing that I've seen again and again. And I think that this is where mindfulness training and meditation and and different things like that, that buy us a little bit of buffer 
between like our kind of reptilian brain and our, our, you know, higher, you know, reasoning, um, where I see things really grind to a halt and it's interesting. Like if you want to motivate a group of people to do something, emotion is definitely a great way to do it. Like that emotive process will, you know, fire people up and get them going. But it's also this spot where they, they oftentimes start taking their, their rational brain and just ditching it and be Mm. the, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, emotive knee jerk responses is when people kill each other and do absolutely ridiculous stuff, you know? And so this idea around just being in decent management and control of your emotions, I I think is one of these, these huge things. And, uh, particularly with, um, you know, like social media and stuff like that, like, and it's not a matter of having a thin skin, like when somebody attacks you, it still sucks, but just having some buffer to it and like, okay, I'm just going to delete or ignore or just not engage, you know, and, and, um, that's been huge going forward. And like in the age of COVID, like knowing what battles to fight and which ones to just kind of, kind of shrug and, and go forward with has, has been really important. So, um, I don't know if that made sense, but that's kind of one of these, these things that I go back to a lot is like, am I, am I operating literally like an animal right now? Like, do mm-hmm. I, or am I able to make a choice to, to do something? Like if some guy's being a prick, maybe he does need to lose some teeth, but I need to <laughs> make, I, I need to make that choice. It's like, no, in this moment, this is the best thing for the world for me. Like, even if I spend a night in jail, like it's, it's worth it to, to punch this guy. But if I just do it out of pure reactivity, then, you know, I can be manipulated that way. I can be really controlled that way. And I think that that's a a dangerous thing. It's something I really try to instill in both of my daughters is like, if you do something, do it because it's what you want to do, not because it's what you were coerced into doing or, or made to do it out of fear. Like that fear based motivation is just so incredibly dangerous. Like terrible things happen with that, you know, individually and at a, at a more societal level. So that, that's something I try to help inform what I, what I do day to day is try, you know, and I think that we're in for a lot of difficulties, you know, with like supply chain issues and like kind of fragmentation of kind of Western liberal democracies and stuff like that. I think we have some tough sledding ahead of us, but at the same time, I try not to make that be the decision maker around what I do in my day-to-day life. Like I understand that there might be some changes, might be some challenges there, but I still try to make those decisions based out of kind of love and logic, not just out of a fear-based reactivity. Because if I go the fear-based reactivity route, it's going to be really limiting in, in what I, what I do and what I can provide for people. Mm-hmm. Inaccurate. Yeah. Uh, what was the book that you said that was from? Dune. Dune. Oh, Dune. It's Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, that that's on the like things that you should watch. I, I did the the 1984 not long ago. Yeah. I was like, oh, why have I not read this before? <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. 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 Awesome, Rob. Thank you so much. And as I said, I'll put all of those links and things in the show notes. Um, it's always great working with professional. You have a fantastic media and support pack that that, that comes with talking to you and. Um, yeah, it's going to be an absolute pleasure to share, and and uh, I hope most people in New Zealand have been introduced to Rob Wolf, but uh, it's going to be good if they haven't, because they will have learned so much. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm honored. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. This was a ton of fun. Thank you so much, and we'll press stop there. Cheers. Oh, awesome, Ryan. Take care. <laughs>